Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment, the definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. Welcome once again to the Crowdmakers. I'm Bill Gertine, and with me is a very special guest. His name is Khan Apostolophilus, known mostly as Coach Khan because nobody can pronounce his last name. Uh, <laughs> he's an award-winning coach. He's a speaker. He's a thought leader on navigating change and author of the book, Seven Keys for Navigating a Crisis, a practical guide to emotionally dealing with pandemics and other disasters. Welcome to the podcast, Khan. Oh, thank you for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you are a bona fide member of the sports community. You're a very active soccer coach. You've been a high school soccer coach, soccer at that level. You've been a high level coach to your two girls. You're also a coach at the Olympic development level in Denver, there where you live. Mm -hmm. Most everyone in the sports business can remember where they were on that day in March where they first learned that things were going to be shut down. You may have had some of that in your world in soccer. Where were you at that moment and what was that situation for you? Wow, uh, that was a, an interesting time. Beware the Ides of March. Um, so yeah, so that, that kind of hit us all. Well, from a coaching perspective, we had just finished up our preseason tournament with the young kids that I coach, and we're getting ready for our, our season. I'm very excited about getting into that. They were revved up. They were ready to go. From a business perspective, I had a lot of work lined up, expecting this to be probably my best year at the time. Uh, lots of training programs, lots of keynote speaking going on in the U.S. and beyond, and having the opportunity to kind of really look forward to a lot of exciting stuff. And there it was, and it all came crashing down. And, and do your, your girls are playing soccer, correct? And, and were they affected by that? Uh, now, my girls are older, so the girls that I coach now are no longer, uh, I, even though I consider them mine, per se, I only borrow them from their parents at this point. So, uh, yeah, my girls are now at, at the point now where they're in college. Uh, but good. the young girls that I coach now are 10 and 11 years old, so they were really excited about getting into this. It was their first full year of competitive coming out of academy programs and really ready to kind of show what they can do. They were heading to the bigger field, more numbers, more excitement, and they were really looking forward to it. Yeah. Everyone obviously is moving away from that now, but it was a tough time a year ago. Uh, you are an import, uh, a performance improvement coach. You work in several specific industries to help them develop their people and improve their business results. The big reason I wanted to have you here on the program is the book that you've written. It, it really is a very appropriate thing for the sports industry and for our times. Seven Keys for Navigating a Crisis, a practical guide to emotionally dealing with pandemics and other disasters. Did you write it before the pandemic or as a result of it? Oh, well, if I had written it before that, that would have been 
Pretty timely, I would think. <laughs> well, you may have changed the title along I the way. I would have, yeah, sure. I, I could have. Well, truth be told, a lot of the content that came from the book was from years of experience. Now, the surprising thing that a lot of people don't realize is that my partner and I wrote the book uh, it was because it's co-authored with my good friend, Dr. Ilya Grigouris, um, another fellow Greek. And we basically sat down from the time we committed to writing the book in mid-March to the time we published, it was 45 days. Now, that's a pretty good quick turnaround, no matter what you're looking at. So it was a very quick turnaround. So by the time my friends had been watched probably two series of whatever their favorite thing was on Netflix at the time, we had written and published the book. Um, and we wrote it as a response, partially because we wanted to figure out how we were going to deal with things and make our pivot from that perspective. But even more importantly, we felt that speed to market was important because people needed answers. And although at the time, many people were looking at it and, and receiving information about statistics, about medical, about the physical, nobody was really addressing the emotional needs of the every person out there. And that's the void that we tried to fill with the book. It's a book that's very easy to consume. It's only, you know, 23,000 words, which is relatively small for a book of its kind. Um, we, write, we wrote it in very simple language, so anybody could pick it up and be able to to absorb it, to consume it, and then to act on it because it's chock full of action ideas. Well, let's dig into the meat of what you recommend in your work and in your book. You mentioned that there are four typical responses to danger and, and fear, and they're largely driven by our personality types. Uh, would you mind going over the four of them and, and maybe how they've played out in the past several months? Sure. So let's take a look at that. The four typical responses that we see in this situation, and we call them personality types or modes, if you will, under the circumstances. And so the first one is the one that we find is typically called the victim mode. And the victim mode is the one that we, where we start stomping our feet and we feel the universe is conspiring against us. And why is this happening to me? I had all of these plans. And just like I had that in, in the moment where I felt that all of a sudden my soccer season is canceled with the kiddos or, you know what, all of this work the keynotes and everything, everybody's canceling on me right now. And why is this happening to me? So that's the victim mode that we see typically right that. The second one is the critic mode. And the critic mode is the one that we get into when we start getting a little bit more aggressive about how we feel about the change. And sometimes we, we don't really offer anything outside of our wisdom and critique. So Bill, you come to me and you say, you know what, I think you should wear a mask to protect yourself and other people. Well, I'm not gonna wear a mask, that's infringing on my rights. Well, okay, well, maybe don't wear a mask. Well, what are you trying to do, kill me? So you look at that, and I'm really not offering anything constructive outside of criticism that's more lashing out than it is anything else. The third response, the third mode, is that of a bystander. And when we get overwhelmed and our system starts shutting down, we start looking like the deer in the headlights. And we get into that place where we are afraid to act. We don't want to act in, in fear of messing things up or causing more harm or doing something else. And I'm looking around, I'm going, you know what? I think I'm going to wait till Bill tries this and see how it goes. I mean, look at the apprehension right now with the vaccines and everything else that a lot of people have. Yeah, I want to wait and see another six months and see how, uh, how people fare with that. I'm not sure about this. But when you look at those three responses, they typically correlate with our fight, flight, and freeze modes. So the typical responses that we have to that sudden change. And it's, it's instinctive. It's our basic brain that's reacting that way. Now, we invite people to act in this fourth mode, the mode of a navigator. Mm. And a navigator is typically somebody who can look around 
and assess the situation either by themselves or with the help of others and really engage and see, okay, what's really going on? What's changing? What's not changing? How can I proceed? Does this look like anything I've been through before? And that's where we want people to be because let's face it, we've been through crises before. This is not the first time we've been through that. So a good navigator will look at that and see they'll recognize the signs and symptoms of what's going on and how they need to proceed with that. Yeah, there's been so much of that, as you you say, those four different elements. I love that, the victim, the critic, the bystander, and the navigator. And it seems as though the uh, the first three are really waiting for something to be done to them uh, and waiting for things, whereas the navigator is really more proactive and really more involved in solution finding. Would you agree with that? Exactly. And that's where a lot of times we'll reclaim a semblance of control over our world because we're taking positive action in that direction. But let's face it, this is not necessarily four different people that may be experiencing this. In all fairness, we experience all four of those modes as individuals. At any given time, even if I start out with the ability of being a navigator or choose to be a navigator in the moment, that doesn't mean that as I get tired or as I feel like things are changing around me or as I get overwhelmed, I might not fall back into any of the other patterns. So this is an ongoing battle inside us that we have to address. And it's important for people to understand that if you're not in the navigator, if you're unable to be in that navigator mode, chances are you're missing something, whether that's more information or a little bit of rest to kind of recuperate a little bit and recover or a sense of what can I control? Maybe this whole thing is too big for me, but what can I control? And that's how we get back to that navigator mode. When people are trying to decide how to act in a situation where they've never been in before. There may be the fear of being a navigator because of the danger that may be, and there may be some danger involved. You discuss the differences between danger and fear in the book. What are the differences between the two? Well, let's take a look at that. Danger is very real. I mean, we need to address danger where it might be, um, whether that's the fear of exposure to, to COVID, whether that's the fear of, um, the danger, sorry, of realistically going bankrupt because I don't have any income coming in. I'm suffering from that, not being able to pay my bills or meet payroll, whatever the case might be. These dangers are real and we need to act on those dangers appropriately. But what happens if we allow fear to take over in our mind and we allow ourselves to fall into that victim, critic, bystander mode, what ends up happening is that we make poor decisions. So reacting from a fear base is not the best place for us to be because fear is an emotional response. Danger, on the other hand, is real. It's, it's objective. Fear is the subjective part of that. Let's go through some of these seven keys that you have for navigating a crisis. Now, the first key is, has to do with self-care. Now, that might seem obvious to a business leader who's listening, thinking, oh, sure, I take care of myself. That's not a problem. But what are you, how do you define self-care within this concept? And what are the ramifications if someone chooses not to take care of themselves in a crisis? That's a great question. And, and I'll, I'll try to answer that, Bill, in, in two ways, in two dimensions, considering uh, the maturity of our audience. I'd like to answer that question first and foremost, uh, as we wrote it in the book for the individual. But I'd like to extrapolate a little bit from that. Because over the last several months now, what we've been doing is we've been taking those same keys and looking at how it applies to business leaders, to the C-suite, as they try to lead their organizations and navigate for their organization's sake beyond this crisis. 
So if I may, I'm going to kind of play on two different fields in this case. Is that that's okay? So let's talk about self-care first and foremost, what it means to an individual. It means that am I handling what I need to do? Do I understand what I need in the moment on a physical level, on an emotional level, on a mental level, or even a spiritual level? On those four pillars, how am I doing? Am I in a good place? Am I struggling in one area over another? Am I okay mentally? I feel tough from that perspective, but physically I'm getting worn down. I'm starting to get sick. I'm doing different things. I'm not getting enough fresh air. I'm not getting enough rest because my, my, my world is all crammed into this 1,200 square feet. Whatever the case might be, I need to look at that and really take better care of myself. If I don't, chances are I'm not going to be able to help anybody else. The people that struggle the most with this are those that are natural caretakers. They have the hardest time taking care of themselves because it's not their instinct. They feel it's a selfish thing. Talk about parent that wants to look after their child. Well, if they're not in a good place, they're going to be short-tempered. They're going to be miserable. They're going to be upset with them. Whereas taking the time to kind of be able to kind of recoup, you know, reflect a little bit, kind of catch their breath is important. So that's on the individual level. Let's take a look at that at the higher level now for the, for, for the business leader, for the entrepreneur, for the owner. Well, if you're talking about self-care, you're coming back now and you're trying to take care of your people and your organization. The biggest concerns that you have are how do I balance the well-being, both mental and physical of my team, with keeping the doors open and staying productive as a business? How do I balance those two priorities that I have right now? And I need to take care of my organization. So simple things, i.e. taking a look at your benefits package from your health benefits standpoint. Talk with your HR leaders and say, how do we have the coverage that we need for mental and physical benefits for our people? Can we reassure them that we have them covered right now? That's taking care of your people and your organization. A simple example such as that. Yeah, let's talk about mental health for a moment because the mental health of people at all levels have been affected. Anxiety, depression, all sorts of other disorders have become far more prevalent. And you actually mentioned that in your book. And many of them are going unreported or untreated. And especially from leaders, because you know we go through this, you know, you got to be tough as a leader in sports, especially, and there's an image that you have to keep up. And, and talk a little bit about that. What is it like for a leader who may be struggling with having to admit that they may be going through some things mentally and emotionally. Yeah, so let's explore that a little bit. We already had a mental health crisis in this country that very few were talking about prior to the pandemic. So even before then, we saw the rise of a lot of health issues, mental health issues. We were starting to scratch the surface, partially because of the growing opioid crisis and some of the other things, the addictions that were happening. We were starting to see a lot of problems happening. These were manifesting through different events, whether they were breakdowns in individual level or a lot of the tragic shootings and things like happening that we associated with mental health. So we were already starting to see the cracks in the, in, in the social net from that piece. Now, after the pandemic, and as we were all sheltering in place, these things started really escalating. The World Health Organization is noting that 1 billion, billion with a B, Across the world, we're reporting higher levels or new cases of depression, anxiety, stress-related illnesses. Here in this country, we had a growing number as much as 1,000% increase 
in the suicide hotlines of people calling in and saying, I can't take this anymore. So now all of a sudden you put those numbers into effect, which I believe are much higher, to be honest with you, than what's reported. And you see the kind of crisis that we have on our hands. This has not gone away and it won't go away because when you look at the situation, even though we appear to be coming out of that tunnel now from a physical standpoint with the distribution of vaccines, we're starting to gain a foothold on this and reaching certain numbers that promise to give us that herd immunity that we so desperately need the mental health will last we haven't we're not out of this crisis yet so we can't really even begin healing yet because we're still in the throes of this crisis and nobody has the time to look at something you can deal with something when it's a physical ailment a lot easier and acknowledge it rather than emotional we've all been struggling through this pandemic fatigue as we've as, as it's been come to know we're all operating at some level, even a low level of depression and stress during this time. Well, let's talk about the antidote for that then, because you're talking about two different levels as an employee and as a leader, perhaps. And perhaps employees, having observed their leaders undergoing some of this mental stress, uh, there may be some warning signs and some things that you might suggest that might help them through this crisis stage. What would you suggest? Yeah, and, and it's important for leaders to understand that their old playbook is not going to cut it right now. Part of the reason why we've had the opportunity to help guide leaders during this, this time and the seven keys truly becomes a roadmap to resilience. It truly helps leaders come out of that. It's because we allow them, we give them some key insights that will help them reframe that playbook, update that playbook, if you will, um, to go forward. So Awareness, for example, is the second key. Well, awareness for me and you and as individuals might be listening to how I'm feeling, listening to what's going around and how am I going with this piece, assessing that whole process. My loved ones, how are they doing, observing some of those things? Well, for a leader, it's the same thing, especially as we look at the dispersed or hybrid workforce that we're managing right now. We're looking at people working from home. Some are coming in periodically into the work into the workspace. But we're all kind of all over the place from that piece. Well, yeah. we need to update things. We need to have a greater awareness. I would encourage leaders, for example, to embrace what I call the leadership paradox. And the leadership paradox is nothing more than taking concepts that seem very far apart from each other and bringing them together and synthesizing them in a new way. More complex issues require more complex forms of leadership. We can no longer operate in a binary way, Bill, and just say, oh, I'm this or I'm that. I'm old school. I'm the Bobby Knight style or I'm the John Wooden style. But you know what? Sometimes you have to be both and synthesize those things. So when I look at that and I say, okay, I have a workforce that might be working from home. Okay. Well, I need to be aware that Susie has so much pressure on her, not just as an employee, where she's struggling to continue to show her value and her productivity during this time. But you know what? She's also caretaker at home. She's also mom. She's also school teacher. She's short order cook. And she's wife that needs to take care of all these other things. So I need to bring to the table a level of empathy and understanding of what her circumstances are. She may not be in the luxury spot of being able to have a designated office space at home. She may have to work at the kitchen table next to her fifth grader that's trying to figure out basic math and is constantly asking her questions. So all of a sudden now, I have to show some empathy for that situation and understand where she's coming from. But on the other hand, I also have to show tough love. 
I have to set some boundaries that are healthy for her and for the organization. So both I can maintain the productivity that I need to get, but at the same time, protect her from burning out under the circumstances and having to struggle and work half the night in order to deliver on her, on, on her work assignments in such a way and still be able to take care of her family. So empathy on one hand, tough love, bring them together. Now you've got that paradox that you need to synthesize. So difficult to do. I mean, certainly easy and you've put it together so eloquently, but so difficult to act on because our instinct, particularly as leaders, is going to be different than simply being aware. Mm -hmm. We want to do something once that we've created this awareness level in our minds because we're doers. We mm -hmm. want to make something happen. Can you describe maybe that difference between being aware and perhaps, for lack of a better word, mindfulness? Yeah. And, and the, the difference between those two? So as we look at the progression of the keys, down the path, initiative comes into play. Planning and initiative are key parts of that because the minute we start acting, we start regaining some control over things. The important thing for business leaders right now is to understand that they're not required to have all the answers. It's very hard for a CEO or a senior leader to admit they don't have the answers. That goes against every instinct and fiber in their body. But being open to that and accepting that and understanding that, you know what, let's go back to the people, the smart people that I hired, the talented people that I have on my team and reach out to them and say, how are we going to do this? How are we going to still meet our customers' needs and still be able to do this? How can I keep you guys safe and focused on your job rather than looking over your shoulder all the time? What do you need from me as a leader? That takes courage. That takes a very different style of collaborative and facilitative leadership than what we've experienced in the past. But act, we must. Let's not forget that. We have to act. Leadership is action. It's not position. Well, as you talked about all those four things, the victim, the critic, the bystander, the navigator, leaders can't afford to be any of the first three. You right. have to be the navigator in this case. And I have heard more often than not, the term imposter syndrome come up mm -hmm. with leaders thinking that, that maybe they're feeling like they're not as smart or as talented as others think they are. They live in fear of being discovered as a fraud. Uh, I think that's what you're talking about in this, but it sounds to me like you're saying that the antidote for that or the be able to, to work around it is to actually turn it and ask your people what they need from you rather than you having all the answers yourself. Yeah, and in many ways, this situation, these circumstances, if anything else, have revealed any cracks, any deficiencies, if you will. And people are getting very concerned, especially those that suffer from imposter syndrome, um, that they, they are going to all of a sudden be exposed in this area. It takes a lot of courage to be able to admit when you don't know something. As adults, we don't like to be novices. We don't like to be in a situation where we don't have the answers. It's, it's part of the label that we put on ourselves from that piece. You so, talk about change. Oh, I'm sorry. Please, Con, go right ahead. No, no. It, it applies to change. It applies to anything. I mean, I've, I've seen leaders that, that, that struggle so much to say, I don't know that they make stuff up. And all of a sudden, they get themselves in all sorts of trouble. Um, but what I encourage leaders to do here is not allow that, that, that feeling, whatever that feeling of inadequacy might be that's suffer, that they suffer with, not to allow that to kind of shade what they're doing right now is the time to be vulnerable, to reach out and say, you know what, Hey, I'm going to help you get there, but I do need your help to understand what you need. I can't answer that question for you because these are very different times. There are similarities to what we've dealt with in the past, but we also need to be able to move forward with that. Now, again, 
this pandemic did not essentially create imposter syndrome. That's something that's been around for a long time. It's been more talked about now as we look at mental health issues, but under the circumstances, it's accentuating the problems that some people might be feeling. We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years, and I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark and we went back to the same old, same old. Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry, like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zalaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Scher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. You'd also talk about change, and you talk about it having a beginning, a middle, and an end. And for leaders, you actually have a little bit of a different message. You like to look at that continuum in a little different way. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, William Bridges wrote a wonderful book called Transitions. And in his book, he explains his theory about that, even though he wrote it originally to deal with grief from the loss of a loved one, for example, to be able to process that level of grief. It applies to a lot of the change that we deal with in our lives. Because in many ways, when we talk about change, there is a certain loss of the old way of doing things. Well, look at this magnified now in the past year in 2020, what we were dealing with. There was a loss of the way that we were doing. Our old normal was gone, was ripped away from us. And even though there are many of us that would complain about our lengthy commutes or the time we had to spend on airplanes or the time we had to do this or how hard this was, we still miss that. It's like it's like that that boyfriend or girlfriend that we real that really tortured us, but when we split up, we still felt that loss. Well, that's the kind of thing that happens. So even in bad relationships, you feel that grief, that that loss, and you need to process that grief. Now, all things typically have a beginning, a middle, and an end when you're talking about temporal issues and things that go over time. But what Bridges proposes and what we've incorporated in our book is the concept of the beginning comes last and the ending comes first. So you flip those two. So it starts with the ending, the ending of the old way of doing things. And along with that ending, you experience the stages of grief. We all remember, starting in March, how we felt. First and foremost, we were in denial. This isn't happening. To, that, that can't happen here in the United States. We are, what do you mean? We were in denial. And then what happened? We got angry. We started getting frustrated with different things and who was handling it this way and who was handling it that way. And we start getting mad at each other and all of the different officials of going on. And then we went through this process where we started bargaining and we say, well, if I wear a mask, can I still do this? Or if I social distance, can I still go to the concert and whatever else is going on? 
well, how many people can I still fit in my auditorium? And then finally, we got to that point where none of that was working to the degree that we were hoping for. We weren't going back to our old way. And we started feeling that pandemic fatigue, that depression, that stress that started sinking in until we finally got to that point of acceptance. And once we had that acceptance, we were able to get out of that ending piece. And now we find ourselves in that transition in between where we've been now for months for many people that have gotten to that acceptance. And the challenge with that is that we're free falling now. There is no rules. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no up. There's no down. Now, when you're an adult, again, because we're control enthusiasts, we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time not having boundaries with certain things. That's not a comfortable place for us to be, especially over this length of time. But if we embrace the little kid inside us, and instead we see it as, as, you know what, I'm jumping off that rock into the water, and I'm imagining myself flying all of a sudden. I'm not falling. I'm just, you know, flying and doing all of that. Until we get to that point where we have the new beginning. And that new beginning is where we get to the next normal. And I emphasize the next normal rather than the new normal, because, you know, in my, in my homeland of Greece, you know, more than 2000 years ago, there was a philosophical piece that said, you can never cross the same river twice because you are never the same person and the river has moved on. So we're talking about the next normal because there's going to be another change that's going to create another next normal and then another next normal and then another next normal. And the sooner we can understand that, the sooner we will accept that things don't stay the same. So many leaders are out there and lead others who are really struggling with this change. People love the way things used to be, and they're coming along, kicking and screaming, probably a victim or a critic or a bystander. And they are really having a difficult time going along with what these leaders are asking them to do. How do you suggest that these leaders deal with people who are really resistant to the change that's necessary for us to get to the next normal. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize the piece about empathy, understanding that different people are going to come along at different paces. Um, when you're a business leader, though, you still have certain requirements that you have to meet things to move forward. The way that I've been coaching my clients and my executives and the way that I've been encouraging people to do is first and foremost, listen. Be open to listening to feedback from people. Invite them to be part of the process. The best way for us to predict the future is to create it. And a lot of times we can invite people to help create that future together. Um, chances are we're not going to be in a situation where everybody's going to be in the same workplace all the time. Uh, there's too many benefits to organizations and to individuals to be able to operate in this kind of hybrid or remote workplace. There is a lot of upside to that from an operational standpoint, again, for the individual worker, but also for the organization itself. In addition to listening and staying open and collaborating with people to find what, what works, I would also invite business leaders to have people think about what's really changing, because there's a lot of things that aren't changing. If we can identify what truly is changing versus what isn't, then we can start creating that new model of work that we want we can start looking at this process. It's going to require us to change our culture. It's going to require us to adapt to different things, perhaps more asynchronous work, meaning if we use, again, our sports analogies, I can take the football up to a certain point. I'm going to put it there. Now you're going to pick it up. I'm going to pass the ball to you. Now you're going to take it further down the field because I may be working this shift 
because I'm here in this part of the world or that's part of where my life allows me to work. And guess what? You're going to pick it up because either you've put the kids to bed and now you're working your shift or guess what? You might be in an entirely different time zone and now all of a sudden you're picking it up from there. So the level of flexibility that it's going to require from both workers and leaders is important. And even this, I will emphasize this for the leaders especially, we cannot get away with lazy management anymore. We have to really look at what needs to get done, what the priorities are, and manage our workforce in a much more flexible way, really focusing on outputs and performance rather than how many hours did you spend at your desk? Because I can guarantee you the people that will take advantage of any sort of remote setup or work from home are the same people that are surfing the net in the office and looking for their next thing or checking their Facebook account. Boy, there's so many things you're bringing up there that are so timely, and I'm sure leaders are listening to this, taking furious notes as you go. Is there something in addition to what we've talked about that you think is not being discussed right now that you think will become more important sooner than later that those in sports and entertainment should be either looking out for or preparing for? Again, if we learn one thing uh, from this time in the past and the best practices during this time, it's really focusing on what matters most. Um, on the individual level, on the on the greater um, organizational level, really aligning the individual and organizational goals to get the most of this. Gallup did a couple of studies. They did a couple of spot checks during the year last year. Um, and what they found is we saw a tremendous spike in employee engagement early on in the pandemic. So April, May, it skyrocketed up to 38% engagement, which is a very high number for this Gallup study. Um, what we realize is that people were very concerned on two levels. On one hand, they wanted to continue to show that they could add value in this new environment and in this new situation. But also, they were trying to stay sane. So they were holding on desperately to what they could control, which was their work. So that 38% engagement was a high, high watermark. That plummeted down to 31% by the time we got towards the end of the year in November. And that's a big part of what we're seeing, that if we don't embrace the leadership paradox, if we don't find ways to engage people, and I'll give you another example. We talked about the empathy and the, and, and the tough love. Here's another paradox, for example. We have the ability now with the technology that we have for you and I to be almost practically sitting in the same room, even though we're thousands of miles apart. So we have the high level of technology to engage in the kind of work that we want to do. But to match that, if we're going to be working in a hybrid or a remote setting for our dispersed workforce, we need to engage with high human contact. That means that I need to very purposefully engage with you, Bill, because I no longer have that five-minute walk from the meeting room to the break room where you and I would catch up, where we talk about how our weekend was. Did you go fishing? How was that water hole? Did the kids play their soccer tournament or whatever else, where we bond, we connect, and I find out how you're doing as a person. As a supervisor now, as a leader, I need to take you aside and set up this time on, on a virtual room and shut the door and say, you know what, hey, Bill, how are you doing? And not accept that I'm fine thing, but really ask, no, tell me, really, how are you doing? What do you need from me in order to be able to continue to be effective in what you're doing? So that's one aspect of that. Because if we don't, we see that plummeting number down to 31% because we weren't engaging our workforce. We weren't allowing them to stay culturally connected. So the culturally, cultural connectedness using these things are key. The second thing that I would raise a warning flag to all the people, and during that same time, we saw reports of 140,000 jobs lost 
all female, all female workers, female leaders, women that are leaving the workforce. Net, net, 140,000 lost jobs, all women. Now, that didn't mean that we didn't lose jobs where men were involved, but net, net, men actually gained positions during that time. So all of a sudden, we're seeing this massive loss of female talent at all levels within the, within, within the business world. And how, many of, how much of that talent now are we going to be able to replace? We're taking steps back. That's going to hurt us down in the long run. Wow. Really interesting observation. As you begin looking at other industries, then sports and entertainment, and certainly you have a wide range that you work with, when you think of people who, that are doing things right at this time in our history, those things that you're alluding to in the seven keys, are there companies or, or things that you're seeing done right that come to mind for you? I'll give an example that's probably going to be relevant towards the sports and, and, and the entertainment business. Um, some of the things that are happening is that we are, we, we, we are seeing superstars in their own home environment in, in a very human way during this past period of time where we see them and they're just like us. They're still stuck at home just like we are. We're seeing them in their pajamas walking around. We're seeing them doing very different things and kind of looking at that. And we're getting glimpses into their personal life that we never saw before. So on one hand, that's a wonderful thing of, of our ability of, of these stars to be able to relate to those people that really admire them and respect them. From a business standpoint on that piece, there are so many wonderful things that are potentially happening. Instead of worrying that I can't put butts in the seats, for example, in a particular sports stadium in that hometown, perhaps what I can do is learn from the, from the examples of some of the museums that have created these virtual and immersive experiences where you can literally feel like you're there using a lot of the technology, the VR technology that's in there, the artificial intelligence that's out there right now to create immersive experiences. Imagine now if I can have courtside seats to any event, even if I'm not there, and how many more can I give that to? And what am I willing to pay? So if I'm in a sports and entertainment leader, I'm looking at the technological pieces and what that can offer me. Because I may have lost a thousand seats in my hometown or 5,000 or 10,000 seats, but can I gain a million by a global audience all of a sudden? Because so much of the investment that sports and entertainment has put out was to reaching a larger crowd. How many games have we taken outside the US in order to broaden that fan base? How many stars are going to go out and perform across the globe and do concerts for that purpose? Well, now maybe we can enhance what the live thing is with something that's virtual and to expand that, that, that base. Sounds like there's a window of opportunity there that we may not have had before. Yeah. Every crisis along with the distress that it brings, it also brings opportunity. That's the flip side of that. If you look back at 2008, Airbnb and Uber didn't exist. Now, all of a sudden, they're mainstream. What's going to be mainstream after this crisis? Well, if it's anything like what our house has been, it'll be Grubhub and <laughs> some of the others that are delivering by food. So it, uh, I, I, I could probably predict a few of those. Uh, this has been terrific, Con. I want to ask you a few fun, rapid-fire questions. The first thing that comes to your mind as you go for, uh, as I ask these, are you good for that? Sure, let's do it. Okay, terrific. Uh, favorite binge watch during the pandemic when you were watching Netflix? Ooh, uh, my favorite thing, Call the Midwife. My wife got me hooked on that one, and that was my guilty pleasure. 
<laughs> Besides sports, the one thing you've missed most during the COVID time? Uh, family that's that lives far away from me. Family back in Greece. My sister had triplets during this chaos, and I have not seen them yet, so I can't wait. Wow. F favorite thing about Greece for you? Oh, God. Everything. Can I answer everything about that? <laughs> Greece is a place that you take in with all your senses. How long were you there? Um, I all of my um, my uh, grown up my growing up life. So probably since I was in my preteens, um, all the way up to almost 25, 26 years ago. So a lot of my maturing life, my developmental years were there. So high school, college, military, all of my early professional career was there. Terrific. The board game that you thought you'd never pull out of the closet that saw the light of day in 2020. Oh God, uh, more, not so much a game, but we have literally probably a couple of hundred of puzzles that we do with my wife. My wife, again, I blame her for that because that's our bonding time. <laughs> Very good. Favorite musical artist on your workout mix? Oh, um, that's an interesting one. That's, that's a diverse one. Uh, I would go with my favorite probably is Prince. All right. The sit-down restaurant you've actually ordered out to bring into your home most often in the last 12 months? Ah, the local Greek restaurant around the corner. <laughs> this is not a surprise. Not a surprise. <laughs> your favorite comedian or comedian? Ah, uh, I would say, you know what? I have been really busting a gut laughing with Gaffigan. I've really enjoyed him during this time. Yeah, I love him too. The biggest hurdle you have to overcome in the next six months? Hmm. Helping more people. I just need to find a way to scale my message to be able to reach and help more people. If I can do that, I will be a happy person. Well, I hope we'll be able to do a little bit of that for you here because we want to promote you a little bit as well. One last question. One bold prediction that you would have for the business world going forward. Hmm. Bold prediction. Um, Now's the time to be risky and find out because we're all up in upheaval. How can you do that one breakthrough thing that's really going to change and disrupt your industry? That's what I would encourage people to do. And that could be very different from everybody else. Find that blue ocean strategy that's really going to be a game changer for you. Great. So great. So how can people get a hold of you if they wish to contact you? And how can they get a hold of your book? Okay, well, let's start with the easy one, which is the book. The book is available both in Kindle format, electronically, and uh, in paperback through Amazon and paperback through most major booksellers right now. Um, as far as reaching me, the two easiest ways, uh, one way is reach out to me and connect with me through LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me under Coach Khan, and that's Khan with a K, K-O-N. I spell it with a K on purpose because it's hard to get people to trust you when you spell it with a C. Um, that's what I found out. The second way is um, a lot of great information, things to access, and uh, a lot of stuff to see on my website, freshbizsolutions.com. Great. The book is Seven Keys for Navigating a Crisis, a Practical Guide to Emotionally Dealing with Pandemics and Other Disasters. The author and gracious guest is Khan Apostolophilus coach, speaker, thought leader, and now author, and terrific book. It's so great insights. Thank you so much for spending time with us here on the Crowdmakers Con. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast. 
and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of the Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening and so long for now. This is the Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.